Let's turn to our text for this evening, which is Exodus 29, <coughs> verses 1 through 9. And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Our Father, strengthen your servant tonight for the welfare of your people. Grant clarity of thought. And Father, we pray that you would accompany this word by your spirit tonight for our good. May you illumine our hearts and minds to this text of scripture that we might understand it aright. And may it point us to our Savior and to the significance that it has for us this day. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we saw how chapter 29 concluded in a summary fashion in a very profound way and spoke to the importance of the tabernacle and the purpose of the priesthood, those who would serve within the tabernacle, Aaron and his sons. And we saw the interrelationship between chapters 28 and 29, though our attention over these weeks is over Exodus chapter 29. Exodus 28 provides the vestments that were all of the clothing that were to be worn by the priesthood. And he says at the very close of 28, if you would like to look there, on verse 41, so you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. That's the vestiture. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. So as you transition from chapter 28 that deals with vestiture, putting the proper clothes upon the priests, you transition to chapter 29 and it provides for us that very ceremony by which Aaron and his sons would be consecrated. And that's where our attention is. That's the reason why it begins in chapter 29. And this is what you shall do to hallow them or to sanctify them, to consecrate consecrate them for ministering to me as priests. Let's just consider for a moment what that word hallow means. It also is the word consecrate. Consecrate means to holy eyes, if we can use that word. It's to actually set apart and sanctify something from the profane to the holy, from the profane to the sacred. There is a sacredness to what these priests are called to do. There's a sacredness to, in fact, all that they wear. Consecration means that these priests are then associated with the sacred. They're able to go into the most holy place and to serve there in the tabernacle. We have all kinds of examples. I'll just give you a couple out of Genesis. And then this is not new to the book of Exodus. You know, we have in Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day, God set apart the Sabbath which just simply means that it is sanctified. It is not ordinary, but it is not common, but it is holy. 
Same thing when you move into Exodus chapter 3. You'll remember God told Moses, you're standing on hallowed ground. There's that word hallowed, which is the New King James translation of this in verse 1. It is because of God's presence that ground was holy. They were to consecrate the firstborn, Exodus 13, of every man and beast. You get to Exodus 20, we find the name of God is separated and set apart as holy, meaning that it is not common, it is not ordinary, it is set apart as holy. And then you get to chapter 28, and here we have these holy garments. What made them holy was not the material that they were made out of or the gems that were put on them, but rather it was because they were consecrated, those very clothes. To connect this to something that you and I regularly practice is that of communion. The bread and wine are consecrated. That's the most appropriate word to associate with that. That's the reason why it's so dangerous to partake of bread and wine, the holy meal, if one is not qualified to do so. It is consecrated. It is holy unto the Lord. So just as all these things are made holy, so also is this whole office of priesthood consecrated and set apart for holy purposes. Well, how is one consecrated? What's the process? That's what's called ordination. Ordination is the process or procedure after which one is deemed consecrated. And as we proceed into our study in chapter 29, that's what we find before us is this procedure, this ordination process by which the priesthood would be consecrated and set apart for this purpose. Now, the very first stage, and we're going to be going through all the stages of this ceremony, the very first one is the anointing. That's what's before us tonight. In verses 1 to 9, that's what's highlighted is, first, the anointing of the priesthood. We're going to just consider this in three parts. First, the anointing as it concerns Israel and its historical context. And then the anointing as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the anointing as it relates to us. In fact, that's a very good paradigm for interpretation of God's word. Start with its original context. How does it fit into the larger picture of the story of redemption that culminates in Jesus Christ? And then we now apply it to ourselves. Well, what is its historical context? Well, he's told right there at the beginning of 29, gather all the materials together. So we see him getting all the materials together. And then in verse 4, he's to bring Aaron his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So now we're ready to go. And there are three things that then happen whenever he brings Aaron and his sons. The first thing is they're washed. Secondly, they're robed. And then thirdly, they're anointed. First, they're washed, then robed. And then finally, they are anointed. Well, it says here clearly in verse four, Aaron and his sons, you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle meeting and you shall wash them with water. This again highlights the sin-stained nature of these very men that are being called to this office. And they are in need of this spiritual purification, this symbolic spiritual cleansing in order for them to handle the holy things of God. But then it moves into their being robed. First, they have to be washed and ceremonially cleansed, and then they are robed. And we find that in verses 5 and 6. You shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, the robe on the ephod, the ephod, and the breastplate, better put breastpiece, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. We see here why chapter 28 precedes chapter 29. We know that he was not only to be ceremonially cleansed, but he also had to ceremonially be put in a position of positive holiness. 
Not just cleansed, but he has to have positive holiness in order to enter the holy presence of God. Because God will have nothing in his presence that's not as holy as he is holy. Now this is theologically potent. The reason this is theologically potent is that we have the very beginnings here of teaching us the difference between infusion and imputation. Because we find that this holiness that these priests would have was not something intrinsic to them and it wasn't where God now comes internally and then makes them holy from within in order to qualify them. Their righteousness or their holiness that then qualifies them to enter the holy of holies is an alien holiness. So we already have this idea of imputation already being introduced to us. They aren't infused with holiness. No, they're given robes that sits on the outside of their person and it is imputed to them. And so they have these holy garments that are alien to them, but yet it's those very holy garments that qualifies them to enter the holy presence of God. But there's something that Aaron accents here that actually he doesn't say back in chapter 28. He identifies the turban in a very particular way. Look at verse six. He says, you shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Now, if you recall, part of the vestiture of the priesthood is that they had this turban that went around their head. And then there was a plate that was put across the front of that turban. And that plate said, holiness to the Lord. Again, highlighting that this is the whole purpose of the priesthood is to serve in the holy presence of God, but they themselves have to come with positive holiness and imputed alien positive holiness, but it is gifted to them. And it's interesting that he calls it a crown here. It's as if the author, Moses, is highlighting for us that of all of these vestiture, all that you could say about the ephod and the breast piece, it's not a breastplate, it's not metal, but of all that you can say about his clothing, there is an apex to all of them. There's one that actually possesses a supremacy in all of this vestiture. And it has to do with the crown. In fact, he calls it a crown. It's kind of like the crown jewel of the whole thing. There is holiness in this office. It speaks to the whole purpose of the priesthood's garments. They were not intrinsically anointed men that then qualified them to be holy. No, only the holy man was fit to be anointed. And in order for him to be a holy man, he had to have this imputed holiness, which is the garb that he would wear. And then only then, the order's important, only the holy man then is able to be anointed. He's not anointed until third. He's washed, then he's got to be robed to possess an imputed holiness, and then he qualifies for anointing. And that then transitions us to the final stage, which is the anointed in verse seven and eight. He says, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. Though Aaron is singled out here, we are later told that the oil is also applied to all of his sons as well. The meaning of the word anoint, the Hebrew word there is mesa. It literally means to spread liquid over something. And that's literally what they would do. We know that this was true not only of priests, but also of prophets, of kings. 
In fact, you may have let your eyes drift a little bit to verse 1 on our next reading in 1 Samuel. And that's where Saul is going to now have this oil poured all over him. And they would pour it over the top and it would come down over the beard. The Psalter talks about the dripping of the oil that comes down. Well, this special mixture or formula of anointing oil was literally poured over their heads. And why is this? What it does is it singles out that these are appointed men, not self-appointed men. They are appointed by God. It is God's act, not theirs. And God is the only one who is singling them out and appointing them to this task. Uh, and they are set apart. So this anointing oil was a symbol of the Lord's appointment. And it also was a symbol indicating the outpouring or the association of the Holy Spirit with what they were doing. Where they were equipped men in order to serve in this particular office. But they did not take this upon themselves. It was not self-appointed. God appointed them, God called them, and God provided them the symbol of the Holy Spirit to equip them for their work. Now, we should back up for just a moment and just recognize something. This was a joyous occasion for the people of God. But it was a joyous occasion in a way that might be different than what we think. We probably have all gone to a graduation ceremony, maybe a high school or college graduation, and it's a joyous event. There's a lot of reason for celebration. But the celebration and the attention of the celebration is on the graduate. The case here, what makes this a joyous occasion, has absolutely nothing whatsoever with these men. Nobody's rejoicing over these men. They're all rejoicing in God having appointed these men as a gift to them. Because let me remind you of something. If you, if you don't walk away with anything tonight, walk away with this. I need to remind you that this actual ceremony that's explicated in Exodus 29, telling us what's going to happen, it's not happening here. 29 has given us basically the blueprint of this ceremony of ordination. But when does it actually take place? It takes place on the other side of chapters 32 to 34. And what happens in chapters 32 to 34? Aaron, the man who's being called to be high priest, he's the one that leads the entire people of God into idolatry. He's the one that brings about this whole golden calf event. They know good and well that man is sinful. It's kind of like whenever they get to the ordination ceremony, they're all looking at each other going, well, there ain't anything holy about that guy. Because it wasn't too long ago that he was leading them in false worship. You see? So the celebration had nothing to do with Aaron. They all knew Aaron was as dark and as much of a sinner as any of the Israelites. But what stood him apart was God's appointment and God's consecrating him and anointing him to a particular office so that he could then serve within the holy place. And therein is the celebration. It's a celebration over God gifting his people with this office. Isn't that remarkable? That should be an encouragement to us. It should be an encouragement to us. There ain't nothing in here that gets God's attention or makes me fit and qualified for something. And they all knew that when they looked over there at Aaron. Well, Aaron and his sons were continual reminders of that. And really all of this imagery, brothers and sisters, we know this as Christians, that all of this really pointed to something and someone much greater than Aaron and his sons. That the entire priesthood pointed to the priest that would come, our Lord Jesus Christ. This really brings us to the gospel in many ways. Have you ever thought about when you read the gospels, 
that you are given the birth narrative of Jesus, but then so little is given about his childhood. You know, I would love to know what Jesus was like when he was 16. I would love that for my son's sake, to know how Jesus handled matters in relation to his parents and to his neighbors. The scripture doesn't, it's actually not even interested in satisfying that intrigue that we might have about what he was like. It's interesting that the Bible jumps immediately from the birth narrative of the Messiah directly into Jesus having just passed up his 20s. And it wouldn't, wouldn't it be so intriguing to know what he was like, but um, one of the reasons why we're not given a lot of that data concerning Jesus and his teens has everything to do with Exodus 29. For just as Aaron's priesthood was a public office into which he was anointed and ordained, so Jesus came into the world not to satisfy our curiosities of what he was like as a young boy born of a virgin, but rather he came to hold public office, one of which was being a high priest. So it was necessary for Jesus to be washed, robed, and anointed. And it's interesting that the narrative of the Gospels jumps almost immediately into that very subject matter. It's very interested in the messianic mission. This, this, this babe born in a manger has a mission. And it was in, of course, the minds of all of the Israelites, it was no surprise to them to find that priesthood came about when you were 30. So it was already in the climate. You're not a priest when you're 18. But we come to the Lord Jesus' first act in his public ministry. Actually, before he is launched into his public ministry. What is the very first act before he launches into his ministry? It's his baptism. At his baptism, Jesus was washed in the River Jordan, not because he was a sinner, but he was identifying himself with the people that are sinners, of whom he would represent as their priest. And then the scripture tells us something interesting that took place right there at that washing event. It says that the heavens were open, quote, and the Holy Spirit poured out or descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Now, what actually is taking place here when the dove is coming and is being poured out or descending upon Jesus? Again, it has everything to do with Exodus 29. We're told in Peter's message in Acts chapter 10, these words. Listen to Peter. As for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee After the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So Peter explicitly interprets for us what was going on there with the Spirit. It has to do with his being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Remember also in Luke 4, if you remember, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he comes up before the people at the synagogue and he opens the book of Isaiah and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. See, he's referencing back at his baptism. The the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me, past tense. He anointed me to proclaim good news. And then he said to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus at his baptism was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And what's very interesting that it was not at all a symbolic. It wasn't a symbol of the Holy Spirit, was it? The priesthood back in Exodus 29, they were given this oil as this kind of symbol of the presence and the association of the Spirit with what they were doing. Jesus doesn't have a symbol. 
And do you remember my saying earlier that the word here is mesa for anoint? Mesa is the root word for the word Messiah. And that's the reason why Jesus as the Messiah literally means he's the anointed one. He's the one that all of us pointed to. Messiah means the anointed one. Now wait just a second. This is where it gets a little dramatic. Jesus was washed. Peter tells us that he was washed and then he, the spirit of God descended upon him and he was anointed. But wait a second. What did we learn in Exodus 29? Washed, robed, and then anointed. What about Jesus' robing? Jesus did not need an alien righteousness. See? He did not need a robe external to him in order to count him as holy. For he was the Holy One of God. Isn't that just powerful? He was the Holy One of God. His holiness was intrinsic. Now we learn a lot about the priesthood having the plate on his forehead uh, going into the Holy of Holies because that just teaches us that Jesus could not enter the holy place apart from being the holy one, having positive holiness. But Jesus' positive holiness is not external to him. It's internal to him. It's remarkable. And so Jesus is exclusively appointed. That's why we, of course, proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ because he's the only one that's got the holiness uh, in order to be a high priest as anointed one and is set apart for that office. God appointed him and set him apart to hold this office of high priest for our sake. His investiture came not from outside, but his investiture was his holiness as he lived, as he thought, as he desired. It's remarkable. As he willed, as he acted. Every intention of his heart was perfect. Jesus, the Messiah, is everyone's only hope of dwelling in the presence of God. Therefore, we proclaim the necessity of being united to Christ Jesus in order to have any expectation of Entering the very presence of God one day. Yes, this holy one who for our sake wore a crown of thorns did so that you and I might wear a crown of holiness. You see, you and I are the ones that get the crown of holiness external to ourselves. All because he wore a crown of thorns in our place. But what about now? Let's just briefly touch on this. How does this doctrine as dramatic and as potent as what it is we've already seen, I hope that your faith is already drawn to Christ and you're already seeing the glory of what he is for us as a high priest. So therein is your chief application is to let your hearts delight in your high priest and savior. Well, one says, well, well in, today, uh, in today's context, we don't have priests because we're not in need of priests. The veil has been ripped. And that is extremely true and very important for us to keep in mind. There is the priesthood of old where there was the necessity of an intercessor of man to do so in a typological way. He is no more. But it is very interesting that there is only one time in Paul's ministry that he actually refers to the ministry of the word as a priestly act. There is a sense in which God has set apart gospel ministers for the purpose of laboring in the word and in the sacrament 
There again, we have holy elements, right? But it is interesting what Paul says in Romans 15. And let me just read it to you. He says, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of God, of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. This is Romans 15, 16. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So there's a sense in which the ministering of the gospel served as a priestly function, as being a means by which the Gentiles, the nations, are brought to God as this thank offering, this sacrificial thank offering. So it is interesting that he does allude to the special office as involving a priestly service in some sense. But more importantly and more prevalently in the New Testament is attention given over not to special office, but to general office, the general office of all believers. In speaking to the church as a whole, the apostle Peter says this, you're a chosen race. That's interesting. That's language back from from Israel. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, all of this language is ascribed to Israel of old. And he's speaking to the church a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. We are this royal priesthood, and he's speaking to all of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, he also says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, which is a temple, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not lambs and rams and bulls, but spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. And then you have in Revelation chapter 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So the church is being recognized as a collection of priests. We get that language of the priesthood of all believers. So there's a sense in which all Christians are priests. And very interestingly, we find the same requirements of a priest to be true of us with respect to our anointing. Let's take the washing. In our baptism, there is a signifying of our sins being washed away because of Christ having borne them. We are dirty in sin. We are in need of being cleansed and being washed. And when the Spirit of God works new life in our souls, all of the blessings and spiritual realities that are associated with that sign, point, uh, it all points to what is actually true of you. So through Jesus Christ, we are washed. You're going to notice that all of these are related to our union with Christ. By faith, we are robed in an alien righteousness. And we put on Christ. In fact, in Galatians 3, Paul says, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. That's very much language that you find in Exodus 29. 
Now, we have no investiture of ourselves, of our own. The only investiture that we have is a righteousness that comes on the basis of faith that's imputed to us. It's external to us. It's alien to us. And the garments that we have that allows us to stand before God in his presence and to offer ourselves as sacrifices unto him is that alien righteousness. But when that which our baptism signifies has been poured out or applied to our hearts, who is the one that applies it? It is the Holy Spirit. Who's the one that takes up residence within the souls of God's people? The Holy Spirit. And the New Testament uses priestly language when it speaks about this. In Titus 3, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. 1 John chapter 2, he says, but you Christians have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge a right to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. You see, this anointing language is being spoken of, again, as the Holy Spirit inhabiting his people. And in 2 Corinthians 1, this will be the last one, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There again, we find the association with anointing with the spirits taking up residence within us. So the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. And it is because of that that you and I are priests unto God. So is this only an Old Testament concept? No. Is it only a concept that applies to the fulfillment of the priesthood of Christ? It's not only that, but in Christ, you and I are priests unto the living God. Um, <clears throat> to land this plane, I want us just to consider for a moment tonight, you know, there's a lot of talk about identity today and what is your identity and who you are. I think this is one of those things that's worth us really giving consideration to because this is an identity <laughs> issue. You as a Christian are a priest. That's who you are. You're a priest. You don't wake up one morning and decide, no, I'm not going to be a priest. Every morning that you awaken, you're a priest. Who am I? Well, I'm a Christian. But part of the answer to that is that I am a priest. I have been set apart. I have been sanctified. I have been consecrated for the service of God. And watch this now wasn't self-appointed here we just find the infinite grace of our God he in his infinite grace has chosen to appoint you you did not take this office upon yourself you did not self-appoint yourself as a priest but part of this whole matter of anointing is God singling out those who are priests and appointing them by his own kindness his own wisdom to serve in the very presence of God and in his dwelling and what was only spoken of in reference to Aaron and his sons in the Old Covenant is spoken of of you and me today. That's who we are. 
And the whole reason that we are anointed is for the purpose of serving God. Hebrews says, and we are those priests who offer up the spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. As Peter said, we offer spiritual sacrifices. We really give ourselves over as a whole burnt offering. We're going to see some of this comes in later in the seven days of ordination. So we'll get to some of that. But for now, let us just consider that the impact of our being set apart and anointed, appointed by God for the purpose of serving God. And we have this holy calling that the Lord has given to us to render holy service unto the Lord. One of the areas I think that this should impact us, brothers and sisters, is in the area of temptation. When you and I struggle with temptation over a particular sin or sins, we need to remember that we are not our own and that we have been appointed by God as those who have been set apart as holy unto the Lord. And the only reason we've been set apart is to remain undefiled, to render service unto the Lord as his holy priests. We need to be reminded in the depths of temptation, I am a priest of God. Can you imagine after this long ceremony, and we're going to see it's a seven-day ordination, Can you imagine on the other side of this ordination, the memory of that event? Now, you and I don't have a memory like that where it's very physical, where we have garbs and we have, you know, all the smells and bells. But let us remember in the heat of temptation that we are priests unto God and we've been set apart for a holy purpose. And let that ring in our ears during times of temptation. The same spirit, brethren, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit inside of you. That's potent. I want to conclude by asking a question that the Heidelberg Catechism asks. And I think it's fascinating how the Heidelberg answers this question. The question is this, why are you called a Christian? And here's the answer. Because by faith I am a member of Christ and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterwards to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. So even the question of what is a Christian, what does it mean that you're called a Christian, has everything to do. It's interesting it starts that way. It has to do, first of all, that you are anointed, which is the first stage in the process of ordination. Let's pray. Our good God and Father, we thank you for the rich imagery uh, that you give to us in your word. And Father, while it's so distanced to us in time and seems so very ancient, uh, Father, we are grateful to you that you have inscripturated this for our good, not just so that we can satisfy our curiosities over what things were like in the past time, but that we might truly allow what is given to us in Exodus 29 to truly marinate in our own hearts so as to illumine us to who Jesus is as our high priest and the glory of that office that he held for us and holds for us as an intercessor and how that spills over into our union with him as we are called priests of the living God. Oh, Father, we thank you for the holy calling that you've appointed us to. May you continue to equip us by your spirit to carry out our day in and day out as a living sacrifice. 
as giving our whole selves over in our entirety, in full devotion to you as a thank offering to you for what you have done for us as our Redeemer God. We love you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.